Superhumanize. Accelerated evolution. We are currently going through a spiritual crisis. We live in a time that is dominated by a materialistic and mechanistic worldview. In our current culture, consumption is prized more than compassion. Power is valued more than peace, and status is deemed more important than connection to spirit. We witness the results of this every day in the wrecking of our own well-being and of the planet. How can we find a way out of the crisis? It starts with ourselves. It starts within. It starts with the examination of who we truly are and with the evolution of our hearts. And my guest today is a man who has dedicated his life to spiritual growth and healing. Rabbi Mordecai Finley is the co-founder of Orha Torah Synagogue in Los Angeles. He holds a doctorate in religion and social ethics. He's a historian, a philosopher, and a spiritual psychologist. He's also a United States Marine Corps veteran, the founder and former president of the Academy for Jewish Religion, and the world's only rabbi with a black belt in jiu-jitsu. His teachings are informed by his full and eclectic life and by the many schools and traditions he studied, amongst them the ancient wisdom of the Kabbalah, Stoicism and Neoplatonism, the principles of Carl Gustav Jung, and a range of modern psychological schools of thought, such as William Glasser, Albert Ellis, and Byron Katie. Rabbi Finley's mission is to serve the greater good of all, sharing his wisdom about the truths about the human condition. And today, he generously shares this wisdom with us. summer and I have passionately dedicated the last 12 years of my life to creating the ultimate human experience mentally, physically and spiritually based on the most powerful ancient teachings and cutting-edge modern discoveries and technologies. The Superhumanized Podcast is a show committed to sharing what I have learned from the world's leading experts in order to help you achieve your full potential and create your best life ever. Rabbi Finley, it is such a pleasure to have the opportunity to talk to you today. Thank you for being with us on the Superhumanized podcast. It's a pleasure and an honor, and I'm so looking forward to talking to you. Since I know you are very much interested and educated in philosophy, I would like to start with the following quote of Socrates, and okay. or that has been attributed to Socrates by Plato. An unexamined life is not worth living. I'd like to delve into that, but I'd also like to give the cheeky writer Kurt Vonnegut a little bit of a voice in here. He actually said, Plato says that the unexamined life is not worth living, but what if the examined life turns out to be a clunker as well? Let's define the word life very briefly. Mm -hmm. So we're not discussing the biological life, the functional life. It, the word life here means something else. So by life, I think we mean awareness that you are alive, awareness that you're mortal, uh, awareness that there might be purpose and meaning to be gained here, mm -hmm. perhaps awareness that there are parts of your life that are not going as well as you want them to. 
oftentimes in human relationships, oftentimes in inner well-being. So what a person might do is say, I don't know how to make myself feel better. I don't know how to make me, make my relationships better. I'm just going to go one foot in front of the other until I hit the end. Mm -hmm. So there's a much better way to live life. And that's the reflective examined life. Now, whether it's not worth living, uh, I'm not going to judge that for anyone else. I don't think Plato Socrates would either. So they're making a statement a little bit hyperbolic in order to get us to live reflective lives where we evaluate who we are, what we're doing, what our purpose is. Right? I don't know if it's not worth living. I don't want to jump into someone else's life, but I will say an examined life is a better life. Now let's take uh, Vonnegut where he says, what if the examined life is a clunker? Yeah, he's because Vonnegut knows, as do you, as do I, there are people who have actually suffered and uh, suffered poorly, suffered badly, objectively. And when people philosophize about their suffering, probably the most famous case is Viktor Frankl's uh, logotherapy. When people examine their suffering and are able to make a distinction between the authentic self that is not subject to the suffering, there's a part of the self that's fully engaged in life and that self suffers. But there's another self, and many people have written about this, that when they're suffering, they're able to find a deeper self, a pure crystalline sense of self where the suffering can't get to. So I think if I were to talk to Kurt Vonnegut, and I'll say, despite all your suffering, have you found that place of authentic self where the suffering just can't get to fully? I think he'd say yes. I think he, I think even sometimes he wrote from that. Place. And you know what you just put into words so profoundly and so eloquently is actually something... I think most people who pose this question or who are trying to lead an examined life are faced with that. On the one side, we, of course, have these selves. I think I heard you talking about them as the ego selves that are so fully involved in this daily life we're experiencing with all the ups and downs. Some people, of course, have more ups, some more downs. And it's very hard to let go of that perspective. But sometimes we get glimpses off or connect with, especially when we're seekers or when we're gifted with maybe it's grace, insight, however you want to call it, of this larger self. And we can see everything from a much higher perspective where we don't attach meaning of this is good or this is bad to certain experiences that we might have had, but they just are. But it's very, I find it very difficult, even though I've had glimpses of that, to always remind myself of that. I, I have a little bit different approach mm -hmm. uh, because I see the higher self as having a few gradations. The first step of the higher self, where one extracts oneself out of uh, ego state consciousness, I call the observer mind. And it's very important in the observer mind not to judge because we don't know if something is good, bad, right, or wrong until we can be a bit, a bit objective about it. The unconscious ego self makes immediate decisions, good, bad, right, and wrong, without a lot of information, with a lot of biases, assumptions, and habits. So we want to step out of that. So the observer mind is you're able to look at yourself, look at other people, look what's happening within you and the situation that you're in, and not judge. But the way I teach it, the next step is called the objective mind. Mm -hmm. And part of the objective mind, if there is a, an issue of good, bad, right, or wrong, that's when you bring that in. Now, what do I mean by good, bad, right, and wrong? Two things. One is, does it lead to well-being? Is what I'm doing, this other purpose do, is doing, the other person is doing, the situation that I'm in, does it lead to my well-being, their well-being, and the, the interpersonal well-being? And I can look at that objectively. And if what's going on right now is not leading to my well-being, I got to, as much as I can, transform it or get out. 
we ought not, life is suffering anyway, we ought not suffer unnecessarily. Mm-hmm. The next thing is well-being within a moral framework. So I'm a moral realist. I really do believe there are better and worse answers to moral questions. So then when you get to the objective mind, you have to ask yourself, am I trying to create well-being but violating the boundaries of another person? Is it my well-being at their expense? So I, when I get to the objective mind, I think about one of the purposes of life is to maximize well-being uh, within oneself and with other people within a moral framework. Now, that happens in the objective mind. There are many other gradations to the higher self, but the first two are observer mind, objective mind. Mm-hmm. And go through these three a little bit further. When you talk about the ego self, I have heard you talking about the ego self in other interviews, and you have a slightly different approach to the ego than Sigmund Freud. Can you? I would say completely different. Mm-hmm. So I use the term unconscious ego self as a label for all of the various ego states within a person, typically potential ego state. I typically line up the ego states in the mostly negative, mostly positive, although clearly this is not a a real line. So for example, I was just talking to someone today who talked about when her husband gets angry at at their daughter. And she says, he becomes unreasonable. He becomes another man. He becomes so upset. And he says things he shouldn't say. And then when he calms down, he denies he says it. And that's called an anger ego state where all you feel is the frustration, all you feel is someone is defying you or not complying with you, you say words you don't really mean from the higher self, and then you calm down and you go back to your, I'll call your normal field of consciousness, cruising egos, cruising state of consciousness. (laughs) And sometimes people actually don't remember what they just said. So of the negative ego states, we have anger at others, anger at the self, depression, guilt, shame, envy, fear, confusion, et cetera. And when any of those become too strong, they take over what I call the field of consciousness. The field of consciousness is our default state. For example, right now, I called the A state. As we're speaking to each other, we're aware of what we're doing. We're attuned uh, to it. We're adaptive, clearly. We're having a conversation and we're accountable. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I I call that the A state. At any given time, if there's a stimulus or a trigger, a negative ego state can take over the field of consciousness. Mm-hmm. So I call all those potential ego states the unconscious ego self. It's just a it's just a term that I use, and I don't think anybody uses it how I use it, but it's the term I chose. At the mm-hmm. same time, there are positive ego states. For example, I could be driving and just give enough attention to what I need, and suddenly I hear a siren. Now I've become vigilant. So a vigilant ego state takes, and I'm suddenly looking 360, and I'm slowing down, looking around. And then let's say the fire truck passes and I look around, I calm down and I'm bad to giving it as much tension as it needs. So uh, negative ego states can come into the field of consciousness. Positive ego state can come in the field of consciousness. One last thing, because I want my, I want to create well-being, I might notice negative ego states arise and I don't want them to. I might look at myself and I say, I don't want that ego state to dominate my field of consciousness or I might notice that there is a positive ego state and it's not getting there fast enough. Mm-hmm. So with a higher self, you can be aware of all this and manage it. You can diminish the power of negative ego states and increase the power of positive. I hope that's clear. Mm-hmm. Yes. It, it, that, that concept, that perception of how we 
holistically function makes a lot of sense. Now, a lot of people would like to know, for example, you mentioned this example that I think many of us can relate to of the father and how he gets angry at his daughter and then he doesn't even remember saying certain things. That reminds me of some instances I had with my own father, funnily enough. So how do we actually know when we are run by a negative ego state? That's a great question. So this is my, I call it my white belt class. Person first walks in and says, I want to know how to manage my mind. Uh-huh. So the first is observer mind. After you're angry, as soon as you want, to, as soon as you can, you calm down and look at what just happened. Mm-hmm. So I call this the police report or the bare bones chronology. Mm-hmm. What just happened? What was the trigger? Uh, what was the stimulus? What do I recall my saying? What I, what I recall their saying as much as one can. And then be accountable for one's anger. And I say, I'll, I'll give you the first piece of it. You can ask further if you would like to. Mm-hmm. What were the needs, expectations, entitlements, or demand that were frustrated that turned into anger which is mostly an act of frustration, attempt to control and be punitive. So if a person says, I want to work on anger, you have to take the pointer of consciousness away from what the other person did or didn't do and on yourself and say, put them aside for a moment. What exactly was my need, expectation, entitlement, and demand right now that was frustrated? That would be the white belt step one. And there are many steps further that I think effectively and successfully can help a person manage their anger, assuming they have the will, then my teaching can provide. Outstanding. And you offer what you call wisdom work. And what I found really fascinating when I researched you is that into your counseling practice, there's many different insights from many different schools and traditions that comprise what you offer to the world and from philosophy to modern psychological teachings to teachers like I think Byron Katie right and you have a background in object relations theorists existential and humanist psychology so can you let us know a little bit more about what your counseling methods are how Thank you. At some level, I see myself operating initially in what I would call the existentialist school, mm-hmm. which is I don't arrive with a strong theory. There's a human being in front of me. I don't know what it means. I have to turn myself into beginner mind, mm-hmm. completely open. Because if people arrive with a method, it's your mother, it's your father, it's trauma from childhood, they will end up proving their method. Huh. Yeah. So I will typically say to a person after the first couple of minutes, why are you calling? What do you want to accomplish? And what I work on, this is the precision part when I teach virtue, rationality, wisdom, and depth. I try to quickly go, because we're typically not having a virtue problem right now. They're probably pretty well regulated while we're talking. So we're now to precision. So as people try to describe what's happening, I ask gentle questions so they are able to precisely articulate what the problem is. So here's something interesting. Person says, I don't know the meaning of my life. Mm-hmm. I sometimes say, can you tell me what triggered you to say that? Mm-hmm. Says, Do you think this all the time when you wake up all day? Or what kinds of things happen where you say, I don't know the meaning of my life? Sometimes people say, that's a really good question. It yeah. happens here. See, now I have an insight. Sometimes I feel like I'm picking a lock. I have to go down and try to find exactly what it is. And then again, 
I don't have a theory because I want to see what's behind that door. So I want to explore the, the depths of another human being. I want to encourage them to share with me as honestly as possible. I'll try to put some precision on it. And then when I get a sense of where what their suffering is due to, it's almost always some error in the realm of thoughts, feelings, emotions, etc. So I can sometimes now see it and I can detect which ego state, negative ego state, is pulsating too strongly and some skills in reducing that and bringing in a positive ego state. That's one example. I mean, I have other, I use Kabbalah sometimes. Uh, sometimes a person mentions a problem that fits right onto the Kabbalistic uh, tree of life. Definitely the wisdom in uh, Hinduism, Zen Buddhism are uh, helpful. I don't bring religious faith in a lot, maybe some general religious terms, but only if it a fit, it's a super good fit. The, the, the philosophic question, I think the core philosophic questions are, what is there and what ought I do? So when a person says, it's my family, I'm going to assume there's something called the family. There are, there are other people. It's a system of needs, expectations, entitlements, and demands that is what creates a bond between human beings. Some actually realistic and some unrealistic. So when a person says family, I assume there actually is something called family. I want to find out what's happening and what one ought to do. So I would say the idea of what is and what ought I do is straight from the uh, philosophic school of thought. And I could rattle off many different schools of thought, but you're getting a sense that it's more of a cognitive psychology than a Freudian. At the deeper level, it's more Jungian than Freudian. I'm looking for a system of meaning as opposed to a system of repression. And so with that, you might say all the things I've studied all fold in, as it were, to, to create this, if I might call it a system, but it's a very open-ended system because I'm, I'm learning every day from my studies and from working with people in my own investigations. But I'll call, I have a quasi-method system that I've decided to call wisdom work. Beautiful. I just love the all the different wisdom and teachings and your own experience that flows into there. Mm-hmm. And it's, uh, yeah, it's very, I have not encountered that approach yet. I find it really very just beautiful and appealing. Thank you very much. Thank you. Yes. No, thank you. Many of us, we find ourselves in these kinds of, we have ups and downs in life, but some of us actually know right now, many of us, it feels like we find ourselves in these uh, kind of endless cycles of anger. Just talk about anger or just a general not feeling happy with life, disappointment. And how can we break through these cycles when we think this is all life has ever offered me? This is all how life is ever going to be? Yes, that's a great question. The first thing in my teaching, remember, I'm teaching on the procedural side, roughly virtue, rationality, wisdom, and depth. What does that mean? If a person is suffering, first I need to know, are they well-regulated with other people or do they have outbursts of anger? Mm -hmm. First thing we have to do is regulate, which means be virtuous people. That's the first step. If other people are dysregulated, For example, spouse, child, parent, one has to learn an inner virtue of how not to make it worse. So for example, defensiveness makes it worse with an angry person. Mm -hmm. Defensiveness is natural, but it's like throwing gasoline on a fire. Yes, it is a liquid, but it's not the right liquid. So first I have to find out what's happening and is there a question of virtue here, which means dysregulated behavior on your part or the other person's. Mm-hmm. So once that's clear, and oftentimes um, there is not regulation. Oftentimes, I almost always find that someone is dysregulated. And the second thing I find is 
there are patterns of dysregulation. So down in the unconscious ego self, there are patterns that create rituals. So when a person says, I had an argument with my spouse, child, parent about this, I try to understand the structure of the argument, this verbal transaction. And then I ask, how often does this kind of uh, transaction occur? Mm-hmm. And they say, well, about 20 years. So now so if it happens more than three times, it's a ritual. Yeah. And so then I start to go into the symbolic world. What, is, what truth is being acted out in this ritual? And then I call it, Eric Byrne calls this a game. They are describable. And then I have this term that I think I made up called busting up the game. Uh-huh. So when you realize that, that in a given argument, people quickly go to their preset positions that they've had for a long time. Their line is this, my line is this, their line is this, my line is this. And then we escalate and don't talk for a week. So I say, don't say your lines. They say, what do you mean? Someone says, you're not very good at that. I, one time someone said to me, oh, Rabbi Finley, you're really not a very good rabbi. I said, yeah, I was afraid of that, but no, you said it. Uh, <laughs> they're trying to pick a fight with me. And they said, your sermons are too long. Yeah, yeah, I've heard that. I'm trying to bring it down. I don't know what to do. And so this person was trying every way possible to trigger me. And I, I'm an old pro. So they were trying to set up a ritual with me. I'll attack, you defend. And I use the skill called, hold on a second, mild self-deprecation. It's uh-huh. a skill. Yeah. You can, you can, I'm sure you use it too. If somebody oh, says, yeah. hey, what about this? You go, yeah, maybe. That's a little bit too true, but okay, I can take it. And what it does is it doesn't fulfill your side of the ritual to have mm-hmm. conflict. Mm-hmm. So I te- one thing I do teach is a, an extensive set of what I, what I call a script, scripts to help de-escalation and to break up these, these negative games. So sometimes when the person comes to me and my life is not feeling good, I got to find out, are there negative games afoot? Usually, yes, break up those negative games. And then we're going to go deeper. So I always start, let me try, let me look at virtue. Let me look at rationality. Can you name the game? Can we bring some wisdom in it? Can we bust up that game? And now what are we left with? Hmm. Because if I try to go to deeper things, but people are stuck in with dysregulated behavior, they don't understand what's happening around them with no skill to manage the interpersonal realm, then if I jump straight to inner work, it's not going to be as effective as if I start with what I call the virtue, rationality, wisdom approach. So that's why I use this approach. It's not an approach that I came up with and then applied. It's an approach that I came up with from years of counseling, finding out what actually works. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And talking about being, if there's dysregulated emotion states going on, I get a sense that, especially right now, there's just a lot of things that are so dysfunctional. We, to throw in, just because I love that you're so steeped in philosophy, to throw in another philosophical quote, this time from the Roman Stoic philosopher, Marcus Aurelius, who said nearly 2000 years ago, now we all love ourselves more than other people, but care more about their opinion than Mm -hmm. our own. So even if these are friends, strangers, or enemies, and I feel like that what he stated is so applicable today in this age of social media, where we're exposed to each other's opinions and comments on pretty much a 24-hour basis. And it the toll that it can take on our psyche and the how it can affect us operating from shame or not feeling valuable, I think is very high. How can we 
free ourselves from. I'm sorry, may I, did you go to high school in the United States? I went to high school actually in a few different countries. I grew up in different places in the world. So my high school years were actually in Germany and also the US. Okay. So negative social media is one way to define an American high school. Mm-hmm. So this is nothing new, meaning people gossiping, trying to get people's approval, yeah. not understanding who you are, why you're not socially successful looking at someone else, asking why they're socially successful. I Hmm. wish I were not myself. I wish I were someone else. This is, I think it's been exacerbated by the uh, creation of the high school, which did not exist in prehistoric times. This is a, Hmm. this is an invention that, you know, more or less from the 1920s and thirties that everybody goes to high school. So I've done a lot of work on the history of adolescence, adolescent psychology, and that as people go through life, they regress to adolescent states. Hmm. So the state of who am I liked? Am I good enough? In many ways, is an adolescent state. Also, the blaming. Adolescents love to blame. For example, blame their parents. They have a lot of, they get ensconced in narratives. And many people never fully break out. So I'm going to call an evolved, mature person has a reasonably realistic sense of themselves, mm-hmm. a sense of other people, whom to listen to, whom to take seriously. And that's part of what you might say, an adult consciousness. So yeah, it might be worse, but I remember what high school was like. And I remember working this stuff and the same skills you need to evolve into a mature whole adult are the skills that are needed now. My wife and I've raised four children. We've worked on every one of this, certainly in our lives as public people. So this is a, a deep question. I'll tell you what it requires. The examine life. If one spends some time in spiritual reflection and examination, and you understand your inner life, you can manage your ego states. That's great. Then you go into depth. What's my soul's journey? Mm-hmm. What's the soul journey of the other person around me? I ask myself, what's the soul journey of my wife, of my children? And we're taking the soul journey together. And how can I be a positive effect as I do my role in shepherding them through life as they shepherd me through life? This is a holy covenant. Mm-hmm. So you, I th- recommend spend most of your reflective energy on your duty toward other people, starting with the people closest to you. And then it's an expanding circle, you know, as a good citizen, then it's the each larger community, but it begins in reflection on your own life, your own soul. So a person who reflects on themselves, their own life, their own soul, they care about taking people, uh, taking care of people around them. They have a strong sense of duty. You don't spend that much time on Facebook. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Very good point. Yes. <laughs> And um, speaking about the soul's journey and the lives that we lead, you have had quite a diverse life. You grew yeah. up- <laughs> some big changes here and there, right? <laughs> yeah. Just to sum it up briefly, I'd love to, for you to go into some more detail, but you grew up in Compton. Uh, I was there a- from uh, fourth to eighth grade. Yeah. Before yeah. that, Anna- Anaheim. Uh-huh. And okay. Compton growing up there as a white kid, especially at the time, was probably quite unusual. It was brutal to Mm. put a word on it. Mm -hmm. It was was tough. Yep. Yes. So I I saw human evil up close. Now, remember, I was one of the only white kids in my neighborhood. Therefore, my best friends were black. Mm -hmm. My social circle were black kids. So this wasn't about black and white. It was just that the bad kids used my being white as an excuse for violence. When we left, my black friends said to me, now we're all just turning on each other. When the Crips and the Bloods came into Compton, they got rid of the white people. That didn't mean the violence stopped. The violence got worse. 
So I always knew it wasn't really white and black. It was people who look for excuses to attack the other. So in another country, it could have been a different other. If it were in Ireland, it would be Protestants and Catholics. If it were in the middle of Africa, it would be Hutu and then uh, Tutsis. So it's just the human condition. And because my, my, my best friends were black and they fought for me, they took huge risks for me. It never entered my mind that it's about black people. It's mm-hmm. about bad people. Yes. And there are some times I got stuck in some awful situations and I, the capacity of uncalled for brutality of some people is just extreme. I survived it, but it definitely left an imprint on myself. And then we moved to a neighboring city and a lot of my concern was being safe and successful. So I had a good run in high school. I was the student body president and editor of the school newspaper. And I think still people have a good memory of me. And then I I looked at all that and Ariane, I, I was so socially engaged that I remember feeling, I don't know who I am because I'm managing my 1972, 73 social media, all the people around me, I'm the president, I'm the editor, and I'm a celebrity in my little town. And that's one reason I joined the Marines. Mm-hmm. Because when you go into Marine Corps boot camp, everybody has the first same name, private. There's mm-hmm. Private Finley and Private Jones and Private Smith. You, you may not talk without permission. The only thing you're allowed to do without permission is blink and breathe. And so you become very small. You live in a tiny little world. And it, it was, a, it wasn't, the kind of uh, brutality of Compton, but the Marines in those days was brutal in, in boot camp. And, but it was like a Buddhist monastery with getting beat up a lot. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, and I've heard you speak about this time actually also as a kind of a spiritual experience. Oh, it was incredible because when you're in a place where you're, where you don't have any control and they're, they're, they're making you ready for combat. You think this is rough. Wait until you're in combat. And your mortar shells are landing and machine guns are going. If you can't take this, then go somewhere else. So I knew what they were doing. And I didn't fault them for it because they were trying to tough us, toughen us up physically, mentally, teach us skills to survive combat if we ever got there, and therefore how to manage extraordinary stress. So I, I got what they were doing. I didn't take it personally. But what happens when you're able to manage this, you have to find a self, as I mentioned earlier in our talk that you are different from the self that's suffering. You can even see the self that's suffering. So I could see the guy passing out from exhaustion. I could see the guy getting smacked in the head with a rifle, Mm -hmm. but I wasn't the same as him. I could watch him and I could guide him. And I used to take time. Uh, I I I think I shared on one of the podcasts. I I knew immediately, I had a spiritual teacher in high school who set me up for incredibly serendipitous and fortunate and, and unique in life. But when I was in 11th grade, a brilliant, deep spiritual seeker selected me to be his student. I took that in the Marines. So very quickly, I would have the, the guard in the middle of the night uh, wake me up and I would go into this, you know, the, to the huge lavatory and I would sit and I would collect myself and I would move into the evaluative mind, where I am, what I'm doing, why I'm here, what's happening. And one time a drill instructor walked in and I stood up attention and he said, uh, Private Finley, what are you doing in here? So I said, sir, thinking, sir. That could be dangerous, but carry on. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. Isn't that a great story? It's fantastic. Oh, my goodness. And that was, my boot camp was the hardest, but the rest of it, 
I took my Marine Corps experience as a spiritual journey, a conscious spiritual journey. Another interesting fact about you is also that you hold a black belt in Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Yes, I'm a second degree black belt in BJJ. That's exactly right. Mm-hmm. And so with all these, and I'm just scratching the surface here just by talking about some of the parts of your life, how you grew into the person you are today. How do these diverse life experiences inform your work as a rabbi and a spiritual? That's a great question. One, people, one thing people assume is that my martial arts is spiritual. And at some level it is, but I'll tell you where, but it's mostly learning how to fight. Mm-hmm. And I looked at myself after growing up in Compton, there is a deep drive in me to be able to defend myself. I'm just going to put it right out there. The fact that I can defend myself, that I can handle myself just makes me feel better. Mm-hmm. I can protect myself. I can protect my family. I can protect a person who needs to be defending and I'm competent at it. So before I started Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu at age 45, which is ancient to start Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, I did karate. I did judo. I did boxing. I did all kinds of things until I discovered BJJ, like many people. It was a revelation when we saw the first Ultimate Fighting Championships back in the 90s. I saw that and I knew I was going to do it. And so when my youngest child turned three and we had a more regular schedule at home, I said to my wife, okay, the kid is sleeping through the night. I'm doing BJJ. She said, absolutely. So for me, it really was, I need to know how to fight. Mm-hmm. And that was spiritual because it's, it's an archetype. And, you, and according to Jung, you don't ignore archetypes. Mm-hmm. So there's an archetype in me of the warrior. Mm-hmm. So you can't say, well, I'm a rabbi. I can't be a rabbi and a warrior. I don't believe that. If I have a spiritual archetype and a teacher archetype and a warrior archetype, then those are all my archetypes. And I'm going to let them all be expressed as much as reasonably possible. And my wife knows about this to me. And she said, absolutely. Make the time. We'll do anything we can. And I just didn't stop going. Mm. So, I- so what happens when you don't stop going? <laughs> you end up with a black belt. <laughs> And I love what you just expressed. It's not an either or. It's not you're either a rabbi or a warrior speaking about archetypes. And we, especially in the Western world, we tend to be impregnated with a worldview that's black or white. Yeah, people think they have to be one thing or the other. And that's one thing I say to people is discover your archetypes and express them as much as is reasonably possible. And I think that's what one of my... I don't know how I got here, but there's many things that I've done. I've looked inside and I say, I want to do that. And I don't care if I do it poorly. So I do many things poorly, but I'm not embarrassed because even doing something poorly is better than saying, oh, I can't do that. I say, yeah, I, I, I can do it poorly, but I can do it. So I say, do things poorly. And then the things that you have time for a matter, you, you might end up doing well, but it's very important what you're saying. We don't have to live in cookie cutter lives. We don't have to choose one way to be. We can look at our archetypal selves. We can look at our souls and say to the soul, I will help you realize your archetypes as much as reasonably possible. And I think our souls are very grateful when we allow our souls to express themselves. into Yes. And I think I personally sense that the repression of all the richness of our souls is one of the root causes why we see so much pain and suffering, depression, anxiety. A lot of these things I sense are just caused by us repressing what should be our something that is our birthright in a sense to express Mm -hmm. all these beautiful facets, all these archetypes that we, our souls have. 
hundred percent. And this is where Jung is so important because in Jung's breakaway from Freud basically says we were, we suffer because we repress primal urges and the superego bottles it so much down that we symptomize. And Jung says, yeah, there's some of that, but also we have drives toward meaning. This is where uh, Jung, Viktor Frankl, the humanist, there's authentic drive toward meaning and drive toward joy and drive toward love and beauty. And they're not just sublimation. So one thing to do is do things that bring joy, do encounter beauty consciously, make time for beauty. So the, the four main ones that I teach are love, justice, truth, and beauty to reflect on them, to value them, to be thoughtful about them. I, I find this intrinsically meaningful to concern myself for example, with love, justice, truth, and beauty and depth, my approach to religion is it's a guide toward the soul. So we're back to the examined life. I agree with Jung. If one does not understand one's soul, does not understand the soul, the journey one's soul is on, one does not try to express this in life, there's a price to pay. Yeah, there's a huge price to pay. Yeah. And to circle back a little bit in the conversation, just also so the audience can understand this beautiful thread if we want to look at it in a linear fashion that is your life what was there a specific moment that inspired you to become a rabbi i would say a few things first of all when my spiritual teacher selected me when i was in 11th grade it was a kind of an odd experience i took a science class and the teacher would say things for example we talked about the old notion of spontaneous generation where they didn't know where things came from so they would say they just came into being so he'd be teaching and then he'd look at me and say we don't know the origins of many things and like Jill's eyes I don't know if that was the exact thing but sometime where he'd be teaching the class then he'd look at me and ask some question that had at least five levels and he'd look right at me I thought my, I look around and say, what, what's happening so I went to him after school one day and I say Mr. Bishop Sometimes I feel you ask questions and you're looking right at me. And he said, I was waiting for you to notice. And he described, I'm a secret spiritual teacher. And would you like to go on the spiritual journey with me? I said, yes. So every Wednesday after school, I'd go to him and he took me into the life of spirit. And it became a fundamental of my life mm -hmm. to see myself as an embodied spirit, to see other people this way. It was a conflict because I was also a teenager in California, but this was very real. And one reason I went into Marines, mm. it was in order to live in faith with the life of spirit. I realized I was just, you know, I was too, too fragmented. This is a story I often tell about one of the moments when, so they're marching us down the beach and then we're running in step and we're exhausted and people start to faint because you can't keep in step and they're yelling and they're hitting people and throwing people. And finally, the entire platoon of 80 guys is just strewn on the beat. And he looks at us and he mentions one of the greatest moments in Marine Corps lore, which is the Battle of the Chosen Reservoir, where the first Marine Division was surrounded by, I think about 100,000 Chinese mm -hmm. and fought a fighting retreat. And our lore is we fought a fighting retreat. We didn't run. We carried our dead out with us. We orderly fought one of the hardest things to do, which is numerous opponent in retreat and carry the dead out with you. So he looks at us and says, you sissies would have left the dead. And we stood up as one person. The exhaustion was gone and we were Marines again. And I remember thinking to myself, what did he just do? He reminded us who we are by telling a story. And I just said, wow, that's the power of stories. That's the power of identity. He changed our physical sense of self with a story 
and a deep identity. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking to myself, this is what religion is supposed to do. It just doesn't do it. I remember at that moment, I want to do that. I want to tell stories and help people remember who they are as a way to change their behavior. I just remember locking that. So I can tell you several more. We don't have enough time. But that was a moment I remember to this very day as a transformational moment in my reflective life that the power of the story and the power of regaining your deepest identity. The power of the story because it it touches our spirits, reconnects us to spirit also. It touches something so deep inside of us. And I really feel like we're currently going through a global spiritual crisis. We live in a time that's dominated by a very materialistic and mechanistic worldview. And uh, oftentimes it looks like compassion is prized more than compassion and status is deemed much more important than connection to spirit. What do you feel is the role of spirituality today and how can it help us find solution for some of the biggest crisis we're witnessing globally, whether it's the environment, whether it's wars, divisiveness within societies. When a person is suffering, and look, the loneliness is real, mm. and the terrible side effects of you know COVID and side effects, it's real. And mm. our synagogue, we weren't able to afford to keep our building. This has been devastating for us. Okay, so now I ask myself, what about the rabbis who lost their buildings in Poland in 1939, 1940? And they lost them to the Nazis. And they're Congregants were put in barns and the barns were lit on fire and everybody burned to death. I'm not going through that. This is an economic turnaround. Yeah, it's painful, but it's not that. So when people say to me that things are horrible, I say 1942 was a bad year. Just learn your history. Look where the Imperial Japanese were doing, what they were doing to the Chinese, which was unspeakable brutality that most people don't know about. But look what the Nazis were doing in Poland, Ukraine when they came into Russia. Look what Stalin had already done to his people. Look what Mao had already done to his people. In the United States, I say 1862 was a bad year. It looked like the Confederacy might win. So when every people say this is really bad, I say, compared to what? Mm-hmm. Compared to what? Would, you know, my mother lived through the Blitz in London. Mm-hmm. I said, okay, you're alone in your house with all your devices and streaming Netflix, or do you want to be in London during the Blitz? Okay. And by the way, I, I know a lot about history of Germany. When, when the Russians came into Germany, there was a genocide of Germans when the Russians, oh, I'm sorry about that. When the Russians came through, invaded through the East, they were atrocious to, 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 to German civilians. So I know enough world history that whenever I start to feel something, I put everything in perspective. Mm-hmm. And so when another person tells me how, how suffering there are, how much they're suffering, I say, tell me about your parents. Mm-hmm. Tell me about your grandparents. Who are your people? All of us are descended from tough people, but we have to be reminded that we have the genetic disposition to resilience that we've never really had to learn and master, but our grandparents and great-grandparents did. I'm sure if you took the time to tell your parents and your grandparents and great-grandparents, there's some tough people back there. And so part of it is just putting things in perspective, understanding of the genetic disposition to resilience and decide to be resilient. So you know, when people say, what's the secret of life? I say, start with duty, mm-hmm. find bliss, be resilient and you can't find bliss and know that everything matters. And sometimes this is my method. Do your duty, find bliss, be resilient when you can't find bliss and know that everything matters. And I think resilience is achievable, but we have to decide to be resilient. I hope that answers your question because it's easy out there, but I know we can do it. 
I share your optimism as well from the bottom of my heart. And I have one more question for you, Rabbi Finley. What do you pray for? You're talking to someone whose deepest spiritual convictions is that of a Kabbalist. Mm -hmm. So it's an unusual theology that doesn't have a sense of where man proposes, God disposes, I pray, God says yes or no. I just, it's just not in my spiritual understanding. Mm-hmm. So Kabbalah has a sense of, it's a combination of Neoplatonism and Gnosticism, where the divine is, as we see in Neoplatonism, is layered into the world and therefore layered into consciousness. The Gnostic sense is that as the divine layers the divine self into the world, there's a kind of a breakage. So the human being is it has a, sing, a, a unique form of the breakage of God. We live in the image of a broken God. So therefore, our work is to heal God. Mm. It sounds so strange to people. When they say, I pray to God to heal me, I say, as a Kabbalist, I'm trying to heal God. <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay, So this is a profoundly humanistic concept. Yeah. It's not about me. Uh-huh. It's about healing God. Yeah. And as I work on healing God, I can bring healing to myself and healing to other people. So I pray to be worthy of this mission, of this duty. I pray that I am a person who can bring healing to the divine, healing to others, and ultimately healing to myself. My my prayer is for my being able to do my duty. I, that is a fascinating concept. I, I, I Sometimes when I say to people, there's nothing wrong with you. You're in the, your breakage is one of the images of the broken divine. And when you find your brokenness, you haven't found what's wrong with you. You found your life's work. Mm-hmm. So now that you know where the breakage is, get to work mm. and do your duty. Find bliss when possible. Be resilient. Everything matters. That's a beautiful message and one that also gives a lot of hope because there's so many people who think they're broken and that they're at fault and which of course again is a cause for great suffering again well they they are broken but it's holy brokenness there's nothing wrong with you when you discover your brokenness you say now i understand what my duty is you haven't found what's wrong you found your road found your purpose so a person says i'm not a good parent i get frustrated all the time i have anger issues there's a part of the divine that's broken that in the human condition let's say manifests as anger depression whatever it's okay Now you found your particular slice of the divine brokenness. Okay, now we understand what your work is. Now let's get to work. So that's where I don't teach these these flaws. I call them divine fractures. I love that. When people say, I I work at a rehab, a 12-step rehab center, and they say, I look for my character defects. Mm -hmm. And I say, sorry, I just don't like that word. I much prefer, I'm looking for the breakage in me that is a reflection of the divine breakage and I want to get to work on healing the breakage. So this is where I, you may notice, I'm a little bit pedantic about using language that fits my spiritual system. So what do I pray to God? I guess the power, courage, and wisdom to do my duty. And I love your emphasis on language has power. And it's very important that we use language in a way that actually reflects our missions reflects what we want to work on, and we see it every day. Language can cause a lot of strife oh, and stress. Yeah. This is what people do: is they ratchet people up, they work people up to polarize and to tribalize, and it's in their interest that we be upset and we hate somebody and we support the tribe. So one thing I teach to people is: let go of tribalism, let go of polarization. Try to be a person of 
decency, understanding, compassion, moral clarity, and bring yourself into the world as an agent of healing and change. So every time I hear, even if I agree with a politician and they make a statement, I think to myself, are they trying to heal the country or are they trying to tear the country apart? Hmm. And what so many, in order to advance the cause of their side, even if they're saying something that's true, they say it in a way that tears the country apart. You know, so that, by the way, this is uh, one of my ways that I, I, I mourn Colin Powell so much, the former chief of staff and secretary of defense under, uh, or, or defense or state under Bush, I forget which, but he always struck me as an honorable man that was not committed to creating divisiveness in our country. I just, I could feel his honor come through every time he spoke, even when he made, made a mistake, there was something honorable about him. And I don't know if we have somebody in the world today where we could say, that's an honorable person whom I would like to emulate. Mm. So we have to find it within. So yes, I don't let language, if I'm going to read an opinion piece, I find out very quickly if this person is being judicious and reasonable and not filled with hatred. And that's what I try to bring to everybody else. So precision in language and careful use of language to make things better, to heal the brokenness, not to increase the brokenness. So you, yeah, yeah, I, that is one thing that I in nearly every conversation, I come down to precision and language as the first step to salvation. So if people think that's an overstatement, and I, I say precision and language is the first step to salvation, meaning the salve for the human condition. Yes, <laughs> I love that. And uh, Rabbi Finley, there is a question I just love to ask every one of my honored guests, and that's about their practices, things, habits, practices they have that have elevated their life mentally, physically, or spiritually. We've talked about a few things that are core pillars in your life. Is there something else you'd love to share with the audience? Well, I love the power of the word. So I try to have a biblical verse each day that I memorize early in the day. And I study it and I go into the depth of each word and I, I carry it with me. And sometimes it's the same verse for a few days. Sometimes I change it up, but I, it's as if I turn a light on in consciousness that comes through holy words uh, to which I can refer to. It, it's a way to link myself to purpose, meaning, depth, and so forth. That's one thing I do. Uh, I like the traditional prayer book. So um, it's not praying as in, oh, Lord, do this for me. I beseech thee, my Lord. It's more engaging in the depth, deep poetry of the Jewish prayer book. I love studying our texts. I study poetry. This is the uh, anniversary of Leonard Cohen's passing, and he was a good friend and a congregant. And so I've been studying Leonard's poetry. I like real, I make sure to study poetry. I make sure to read. I think a lot of great literature connects us with the soul. I spend time in, in connecting to the soul, meaning I sit and I just go down to my soul journey. And I try to do it several times a day. I try to record my dreams, interpret my dreams. Those are my individual practices. And of course, I try to be an agent of the good in my family and so, but, but if you're asking about my spiritual practices, there's that. And there's, then there's, of course, being in good enough physical shape to spar at the jiu-jitsu studio. So I have a lot of physical activity. And I'm probably missing something here, but that was today. So maybe if you asked me this yesterday or tomorrow, I would have a different answer. But that's probably a pretty descriptive answer of my spiritual practices. Yes, and those are wonderful and rich. I, I love that you also value language and and poetry so much. That's something. Oh, so I study language every day. I study Spanish, German, and Aramaic. Oh, fantastic! And Aramaic. I oh, imagine that's the, that's the language of the Zohar and the Talmud. Yes. So if you're going to read the Zohar, you got to keep your Aramaic up. I 
took Spanish. I took German. I don't want the language to, languages to expire inside of me. So I'm always putting myself into a Spanish language or a German language or an Aramaic text and reading Rilke in a dual translation, studying Rilke in German. Oh my God, you want to touch the depths of the soul and touch heaven? Read Rilke in German. It's, it's yes. wondrous. And, Rainer Maria Rilke is one of my favorites. Uh, and you can yeah. read Neruda in Spanish. Again, with a dual translation, mm -hmm. it's good enough. Still, the Book of Hours mm -hmm. is my favorite of Rilke. And I read it at least every week I'm reading a poem. Reading poetry is a uh, very big part of it. Wonderful. And Rabbi Finlay, for people who want to connect with you or learn more about you, what you offer the world, how can they do so? Well, at rabbifinley.com, mm -hmm. I have the classes. It's a very kind of MS-DOS last century website. We're working really hard on bringing it into the modern world, but I do have a list of classes. My Wisdom Wednesday classes, I just began a class called Theory of Everything on Tuesday night. I do a par Parenting the Soul of Your Child class I may put up later. Every Saturday morning, I, I teach an extensive Torah study on from an archetypal psychological approach. We do a brief Friday night teaching. Go to our synagogue website, orator.org, and you'll see that information. So I'm teaching every Friday night, Saturday morning, Tuesday night, Wednesday nights. And most people get a little bit of what they need to make their lives more examined and more meaningful. Wonderful. And from the bottom of my heart, thank you so much for this inspiring and truly meaningful conversation and sharing your wisdom with us, Rabbi Finley. Your, your questions are great. And you're A wonderful interview, I have to tell you. I, I know you already know that, but just as someone sitting on this side of it, thank you for such excellent work. Thank you. I appreciate it so much. Thank you so much for spending time with us. Superhumanize. Accelerated evolution. 